1 Samuel chapter 4. I'd like you to keep it open, and I'm going to read through the text as we come to it at appropriate spots. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we look to you to speak to us through your word. And I thank you that these holy scriptures that you gave thousands of years before for us, hundreds of years ago, came for our instruction. You came to teach us, and through these examples and situations and the way you worked in the life of the nation of Israel, you have things to say to us today. And Father, I pray that our hearts would be open, our ears would be attentive, that we would listen to what you want to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Early in my Christian life, I heard a pastor by the name of Ron Dunn speak on the topic of being usable, being usable. He was talking about the idea that as Christians, how all of us who are sincere in our faith want to be useful to the master. We want to see God at work in our life, and we want to be growing in our relationship with him and see God use us to encourage other believers, maybe to have the opportunity to lead someone to Christ or to be able to share with others as well. But he went on in his talk to make this statement that one of the greatest barriers to remaining usable is the fact that God has used us in the past. And that may sound like a curious thing. I mean, he's saying, you know, that the very fact that God has used you in the past may be a barrier to being useful in the future. And that is because of our human pride. It's very easy for us after a time where we have seen God work in our life to kind of think, hey, this is great, you know, and maybe it's more about me than about God, or maybe I can do this, you know, in my own strength or ability, and we become sort of overconfident or proud or we think it's about us, and we begin to drift in our relationship with God or we take him for granted. In the case of Israel, in the passage we're going to look at today, that had happened a long time ago, and they had drifted so far away from God that they didn't even see it anymore. They just didn't get it how far their hearts had strayed from God. And it ended up, as we will see in this particular chapter, with a horrible national tragedy. So what can we learn from this circumstance? Well, we're going to take a look at this chapter, and there are some things I want to bring out to you. Let's take a look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. And hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? 
And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What can we learn from a passage like this? Well, number one, past blessings are not a guarantee of future success. Past blessings are not a guarantee of future success. The Philistines were Israel's main enemy during this period in their history. You can go on to the next slide. And they were a seafaring people who settled along the coastal plain. And they lived in the towns of Gaza and Gath and Ashdod and Ashkelon and Ekron. You hear those names mentioned in scriptures at many points when you read about the Philistines and the Israelites. We don't know their exact origin. Some think they were Aegean, came from maybe Greece or over in that area. We're just not sure. But their influence was significant upon that part of the world. Uh, they uh, Actually, the name Palestine comes from the word for Philistine. And so when you think of that land of Israel, sometimes being called Palestine or the Palestinians, you can think of the Philistines. That's where the word comes from. And they were a serious threat. They knew how to work with metal, and they had iron chariots. It's one of the reasons that the Israelites, it seems, were never able to drive them out because of their military skill and their fact that they could work with iron and they dominated the coastal plain. And Israel dwelt primarily in the hill country. So when the Philistines made this advance towards Shiloh at Aphek, they were a serious threat to Israel. They were now about 20 miles north of the northernmost city of Ekron, and they were making their way towards Shiloh, this religious center in Israel. And they were about 20 miles from Shiloh when Israel went out to meet them in battle. And Israel was defeated, as we read, not once, but twice. And after their first encounter in battle and their defeat, the elders of Israel asked this question, why? Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today? And it was a very good question. It was the right question to ask. Why did the Lord do this? And what's interesting to me, you know, is in their worldview, that was what came into mind for them. They believed that God was in this. He was a part of that. Why did he do it? You know, in our nation, when we have national crises or disasters, uh, for example, if you go back to World War II at the beginning after Pearl Harbor, you know, everybody was asking the question, why? Why did this happen? After 9-11 and the terrorist attacks where the World Trade Towers were destroyed again, everybody was asking why. Why did this happen? But in our worldview, most of the time we ask that question from a secular point of view, and people want to know who screwed up. You know, who's at fault? I mean, how could this have been prevented? And who can we blame? Who's responsible for this? And what could we have done differently? 
for most of us, for most Americans today, it doesn't seem that the thought that God was in that is the first thought that enters into their mind. And yet for those of us that are believers, we look at those national events and we think about them and the spiritual significance that we had too. And I look back on 9-11 and I just felt at that time in history, God had lifted his hand in a sense on America and showed us a little bit of what could happen if God removes his favor or his blessing. And so here Israel asked the right question, but they came up with the wrong answer. In the text, there's no indication that they waited for God to speak to them. They didn't listen. And rather than listening and looking to God for the answer, they came up with their own answer. And they said, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant with us. Let's take this Ark, this sacred symbol of God's presence, into battle with us. And maybe they were thinking of past stories where God's Ark had gone with the people of Israel. For example, in the crossing of the Jordan River, when the priests carried the ark into the river and the waters parted, and the nation crossed on dry ground. Or maybe they were thinking of Joshua's victory over Jericho when the ark was present there. They wanted to bring this sacred symbol of God's presence with them into battle. The problem was this. They assumed that where the ark was, God was. But to think that God would be with them without any change of heart on their part was folly. They thought that if they just simply brought the ark with, God would be with them, and he wouldn't allow their army to be defeated, and so this would somehow ensure their victory. So they sent for the ark of the covenant. It's interesting how the writer of Scripture describes it in verse 4. The people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. The writer of Scripture here is doing something very intentional. He uses this long title for the Ark. This is not just a little rectangular chest. You know, it's only about two feet by three feet, covered with gold with the angels, the cherubim that are above it. Between the cherubim was the mercy seat, and that is where God had chosen to dwell among his people. It was his footstool, if you will. And they thought, again, we're just going to bring this this holy, sacred object into battle with us. But they were profaning it by their use of it. And the writer of Scripture is saying that God is not someone to be treated lightly. This God is the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. He's the God who dwells on high. He is the all-powerful, omnipotent God. And you cannot treat him like this. We read in this passage in verse 4 that Eli's two sons were there. And we have just read in the previous chapters about Eli's sons and their wickedness. If you were making this into a movie, when you read this note that Eli's two sons are there, this is where the music changes. And you have this ominous tone that something bad is about to happen. They brought the ark into the camp. Israel cheered. The ground shook. And it was a 
huge, you know, emotional lift to the army of Israel. They were thinking, this is it. This is what's going to change our fortune in battle. But the Philistines tremble. They had heard what God had done to the Egyptians. But there in their mind, too, they're thinking this is, these are the gods, plural, of Israel. They live in a polytheistic world, and they're thinking that Israel is polytheistic, too. But they do recognize the power of Israel's gods, they're saying, who defeated the Egyptians. And so they muster themselves and they say, guys, we got to really go at it today. we got to really stand and fight or we're going to be subject to them like they have been subject to us. So they fought in battle. And the results were disastrous for Israel. It was a massacre. A great slaughter took place that day and we read that 30,000 soldiers were killed. The Ark of God was captured. Hophni and Phinehas died on the same day as the man of God, the prophet, had said would happen. And Shiloh would be destroyed as a center of worship in Israel's history. One after the other, these things unfolded. The disaster was shocking. Their ears tingled, those who heard of it, just like God had spoken to Samuel when he said, I'm about to do something that will cause the ears of all who hear it to tingle. This was as great a disaster for Israel as the destruction of the temple would be in 586 B.C. For us, again, it would be like those national disasters that we have incurred, whether it was something like Pearl Harbor, or the bombing of the World Trade Towers. Why, God? Why did this happen? Well, one of the major lessons that God wants us to learn out of this passage is that God's power cannot be manipulated by religious activity. Or to say it another way, God is not a good luck charm. He's not like a rabbit's foot. He's not like a horseshoe. He's not like some kind of talisman that we can pull out when we are in trouble and sort of rub it or pray a certain prayer and feel like God is obligated to do what we want. He is holy. He is awesome. He is powerful. And He is sovereign, not us. And it is folly to think that we can count on God's promises while paying no attention to his demands. John Woodhouse said it like this, that we can't have Jesus as Savior without having him as Lord. And there are a lot of people who kind of like the idea of wanting to have Jesus as Savior, you know, sort of like insurance. Like, okay, yeah, I believe in God or... I believe in Jesus, you know, I don't like the idea of going to hell, okay, so I'll kind of sign up on the other side and I'll say I believe in Jesus. But if we have no intention to take up our cross and follow him daily, no intention to yield our life to him and to live for Christ, it is folly to think that we can count on his promises while paying no attention to his demands what he asks of us because he is God and he will not be manipulated by human actions 
Matthew Henry, who's an older commentator from the 17th century, said the same thing, and he made this observation, that it is common for those who have estranged themselves from God to discover great fondness for rituals and relics and external observances. You know, it's interesting. He observed even at his time how people who had lost the heart of a relationship with Christ or didn't know Jesus as their Savior and Lord in that personal way still had this great fondness for these kind of rituals and observances and practices as though that's what religion is all about. As though that's what is the heart of Christianity and they totally missed it. What the Bible would say is that they have a form of religion, but not the heart. How do we see it today? Well, sometimes you'll see people wearing a cross as jewelry without, again, any intention to walk with Jesus. You know, they just wear it as kind of a nice symbol. It's jewelry, you know, and they think that they are religious, you know, by doing that, and then they just simply live in a way that is appalling to the Lord. There are people who say memorize prayers without meaning what it says or thinking if they say so many prayers then God is sort of obligated to do what I ask. There are people who go to church more out of tradition than out of genuine faith. There are people who give when they are desperate or make a vow to God rather than desiring to really live for Him. We don't see it in politics. I mean, it's, you know, it's something that's done all the time when people in politics will say, you know, God bless America. And they, they end every speech or every talk with that. And sometimes you wonder when you hear that, do they really mean that? Do they know what they are saying? Are they asking for that? When we say in God we trust, do we really trust in him and want to honor him as Lord? in our private life as well as in our public arenas, then wouldn't we treat him differently? If we really do believe in God we trust, then wouldn't we open our doors more and pray to him and ask for his blessing with sincerity and truth and want our laws to be in line with what he has said in his word? To use God's name in that way without meaning it, is really to take his name in vain. It is violating his commandments that he has given us in his word. So how does that happen? I mean, how, how does somebody who starts out maybe even well-intentioned drift to that point where they no longer see it and all they are doing are practicing the rituals of faith, but they've lost the heart? Well, many of you know that before coming to this church, Gil and I worked with Campus Crusade for Christ in a student ministry. We were out in New England in Springfield, Massachusetts. We worked on a number of campuses there and our staff team, and one of those was Springfield College. And Springfield College began as a YMCA school. And the YMCA is kind of an example of this, and Springfield College as well, of the point I'm going to make. Now, how many know what YMCA stands for? You know, there's a lot of people that think YMCA is that song that people sing and then they do the actions, you know. No, there's more than that. I mean, it means Young Men's Christian Association. And it started out with a very definite and clear mission. 
Lawrence Doggett was one of the early presidents of the school at Springfield College, and he was a committed Christian. He was a student at Oberlin College when, uh, as a student one year, two other students came from Princeton University. And these two students came and spoke on his campus, and they were part of what was called the student volunteer movement. In the late 1800s into the early 1900s, there was this wave of students that went into missions around the world. God raised up this student volunteer movement that was powerful. Uh, just like Campus Crusade or InterVarsity or other ministries like that have had a great impact on our colleges and our generation, a student volunteer movement was really exceptional in what God did at that time. Their slogan, their motto was the evangelization of the world in this generation, and they were committed to that. So Lawrence Doggett graduated from Overland Theological Seminary in 1890, and he dedicated himself to that mission. And his primary calling, he felt, along with joining the YMCA and then God leading him to Springfield College, his primary mission was to raise up young men who would be Christian leaders in the urban environment. And there were Christians at that time who realized that America, you know, had built this kind of nation on an agricultural foundation, but it was changing. And if we were going to continue to walk with God, we would need to raise up young men and women who would be leaders in the urban centers of our world. The key verse for them was Ephesians 4.13. It states that we are to keep growing in our relationship with Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So here was sort of the measure of a man or a woman is our relationship to Jesus Christ. It's Christ-likeness. It's growing to be more and more like him in every area of our life. And they put that scripture reference in the center of their logo. They had a triangle Springfield College used. There was a spirit, mind, and body on the three sides of that, just like we would in the scripture read about body, excuse me, body, soul, and spirit. They had body, mind, and spirit, and at the heart of that was our relationship with Jesus Christ. But somewhere along the way in their history, they, like many other schools in America, many seminaries and colleges, began to drift away from the authority of Scripture. And so at a point in their history, Ephesians 4.13 was taken out and it was replaced with the lamp of knowledge human wisdom, education. That's the center. That's what we need. It's our answers or our solutions that are going to help us to make this change in the world. And they walked away from Christ. It didn't happen instantly, but step by step it began to drift. By the time Gail and I and our other staff were there on that campus, only a shell remained. I mean, they still had a chapel. They still had a religion department. They had a chaplain, but they were all very, very liberal. Stories in the Bible were just religious myths, you know, that kind of had a point to them, but they weren't true in terms of being God's word. The shell remained, but the heart was gone. And people do that over and over again. What's sad is how many times we have seen that happen in history, whether it's with a church or a seminary, or a denomination, or a movement that starts well and drift. 
And what's really scary is that it could happen to us too if we are not careful to walk with Christ every day. Because we're no different. We're no better. We're no different. If we take our eyes off of Christ and begin to think that somehow we've done these things or accomplished these things by our own might or power, in our pride we can become blinded and miss it too. That's why it's absolutely essential that we walk with Him. In fact, I state it like this in the third point. The only way to ensure God's blessings in the future is to walk with Him in the present. It's to walk with Him day by day, moment by moment. We need Him active in our life. Let's take a look at the rest of the story here, beginning at verse 12. The news of the battle was brought to Eli. And that same day a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh, his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching, because his heart feared for the ark of God. And when the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? And the man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old, and whose eyes were set so that he could not see. And he told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. And Eli asked, What happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied that Israel fled before the Philistines. The army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off of his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel forty years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. And as she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair. You have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. And she named the boy Ichabod saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Let's go back and think about those events that happened. When Eli heard the report that the ark had been captured, he fell backward and died. He was so stunned by the news. When Phineas's pregnant wife heard the news that the ark had been captured and her husband was killed, she died, giving birth to a son. And before she dies, she gives him this name Ichabod, which means no glory. Glory is another word for God's presence. It's like the Shekinah glory that filled the tabernacle when God came down and dwelt in that place. But the problem in Israel was this, that God's glory had departed long before the ark was captured, and they just didn't see it. God's glory had left them some time ago, and they just were continuing to operate on their traditions. 
And rather than repent and cry out to God, I mean, they continued with all of their religious traditions as though nothing had happened. In Hebrew, the word for glory is the word kavod. In the word ichabod, it is the last part, and the B is pronounced like a V or kavod. And there is an interesting and insightful contrast in these verses. We are told that Eli died because he was weighty. The word for glory means weighty or heavy. That's another meaning of it. And here is Eli, this priest, who died because he was weighty. When it is God who is to be weighty in our life. And you have to wonder, knowing the details of the story, was Eli weighty because he too had eaten the meat that was unlawfully taken from those who brought their sacrifices to the temple? Did he participate in what his sons had also done in their abuse of the sacrificial system? And was his focus so much on himself rather than God that he died because of the weight of his own sin? It is God who's to be weighty in our life. It's God who's to have first place and who really counts. As John the Baptist would say of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. And Israel would not experience God's blessing in the future until they dealt with their sin and they returned to God. And the time would come in their history when God would raise up a man after his own heart to lead them. And there would be this turn once again. When I think about this passage, and I think about the points that come out of it, it just, it just drives home to me the importance of needing to walk with God every single day. You see, past blessings are not a guarantee of future success. But those blessings can be an encouragement to trust God in the future if we'll look at them through God's eyes. They are intended to increase our confidence in God and our faith so that we can trust Him for even greater things in the future. We need to remember that God's power can't be manipulated by human activity. God is not a good luck charm. And that the only way to ensure His blessings in the future, in fact, the only way to stay usable is to walk with him in the present day by day. You know, this year we're going to be celebrating our 25th anniversary as a church. And we are writing and collecting those stories and we're going to be, you know, contacting you again. If you haven't turned something in and would like to, please do so in the next couple weeks because we'd like to finish gathering all of those stories. But my concern in the stories that we are telling really takes to heart this passage. I want it to be about God, not us. I don't want the gathering of stories to be something where we pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, look what we did, because we didn't do it. It was God by his grace who's done some pretty neat stuff through the years. And I want us to tell those stories of testimonies and faith and miracles and things that we've seen God do to make much of him, to honor him so that others can see that God is the one who has done these things 
and give him the glory. Will you commit yourself to that and to being that kind of person who walks with God day by day? And will you take to heart those words of John the Baptist, Lord, he must increase, I must decrease. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these things, it is a very sobering message, and I've always felt that when I've come to these passages in Samuel. They cut at our heart. They cut at our human pride, and any hint of that, Lord, I just ask that you would remove. Keep us humble, because it's those who are humble that you can use and lift up. And I pray that in our life, in our church, we would make much of you and less of us. And that you would be first. You would be waiting in our life. Lord, if there's anything we need to do to change that, any sins that we need to confess, would you make that known in our heart so that we can make, again, more of you and less of me. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. And now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen.